There's over 300 prophecies that all deal with Christ's first coming. Dr. James Hogg, a physicist from Stanford University, tried to figure out what was the probability that someone in their lifetime could fulfill just 50 of those prophecies by chance. And this statistician said it was one times 10 to the 160th power. Now, I don't know what you call one with 160 zeros after it, except I would call it the supernatural inspiration of Scripture. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. In our study of the book of Daniel, we are at that section of the book that is mostly prophetic. Today, we move into chapter 8, where two years have passed since Daniel had his last vision, that of four horrible beasts. And now he documents another vision, that of a ram and a goat. Would you take God's Word this morning and turn to Daniel chapter 8? If you're new to the Bible, just find the Psalms. It's about dead center. And after Psalms, scan to the right. You'll come to Ezekiel. And right after that, you will come to the book of Daniel. I love Daniel. He's a man for all seasons. He's a man who teaches us how to morally, spiritually, and ethically live in a society that is becoming more and more pagan. He is an amazing individual. He's the prophet of the end time, but he's also the prophet of the meantime. He teaches us how to live today. He's a man who stands with integrity. He never compromises as he serves one pagan ruler after another. Now, we've already seen that what the book of Revelation is to the New Testament, the book of Daniel is to the Old Testament. And you really will not be able to understand many of the great prophetic portions of the New Testament without understanding the prophet Daniel. Now, as you can see on this slide of the book, and just fill it all in if you would, uh, when you come to chapter 7, we turn a corner in our study of the prophet Daniel. We saw the first six chapters concern Daniel and his personal friends. It's historical in nature. There's a little bit of prophecy. But when you come to the seventh chapter, it deals with Daniel and his people's future. There's a little bit of history, but it's largely prophetical. It's the prophecy side of the book of Daniel. Now, when we met Daniel in chapter 1, he was around 15, 16 years of age. When we left him in chapter 6, he was in his late 80s. And of course, it's important to realize that when you come to chapter 6, which is really a capstone event in his life there in the lion's den, that it's not the end of his life, so to speak, and that the book hasn't ended yet. There's still chapters 7 through 12. He's towards the end of his life, but the book hasn't ended. There's 12 chapters in our Protestant Bible. There's 14 in the Roman Catholic Bible. We'll talk about that later. But there's 12 that God inspired, that He gave us, by the Spirit of God. And so you meet him in his late 80s in chapter 6. So how do you figure out chapters 7 through 12? Understand that 7 through 12, the four visions that we're studying, happen chronologically, but they don't happen after chapters 1 through 6. They happen in and around those times. So you see him as a teenager, we've seen him in his 40s, we saw him in his 60s, then in his 80s. And if you don't understand that, it will become kind of confusing to you. 
Now turn back a few pages to Daniel chapter 2, if you would. Daniel chapter 2, and look at verse 4 for just a moment. Daniel 2 and verse 4. Notice how verse 4 begins. Then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic. And do you see right after that word Aramaic, a little footnote, number one? And if you go out into the margin of your Bible, it tells you there's a marginal note. It says the text is in Aramaic from here through 728, which is what we finished. That's the end of chapter 7 last week. Now, most of you know that God inspired the Bible in three languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. The New Testament is virtually all Greek with a few sentences in Aramaic. The Old Testament is virtually all Hebrew with a few chapters here and there in Aramaic. And in the early portion of our series in Daniel, I explained why the Aramaic sections were Aramaic. Let me remind you with this portion. When you come to chapter 2 all the way through chapter 7, it's in Aramaic because, number one, it's the language of the Babylonian court. We saw Daniel and his three friends learning that language when they came to Babylon. It's a Semitic language of Hebrew, so it's very similar, but it is distinctly different. And so they're involved in that three-year curriculum. And so it being the public official language of Babylon, God wanted to put this portion of Scripture in Aramaic to set the Gentile nations and this Gentile empire that is in authority when Daniel writes this book. Secondly, since this prophecy uh, is concerning the Gentiles, he puts it in Aramaic. So as you can see in this chart, Hebrew chapter 1, 1 through 2, 4. Remember the chapter and verse divisions are artificial, added almost a thousand years after the Bible was done. Chapter 2, the middle of verse 4, all the way through the end of chapter 7 where we finished last time, that deals with the prophetic section as it relates to the Gentile nations of the world, what Jesus called the times of the Gentiles. And then chapter 8 where we begin today, we deal with the prophetic history of Israel. We're going to do all of chapter 8 today. We're going to take it as one unit. Some of the chapters we'll spend three or four weeks on. So you need to fasten your pew belts today because we're going to work hard, all right? Now, with that said, let's get to your note-taking outline. If you want to jot down some notes for study, and this is one of those passages, if you really want to know God's Word, you're going to have to search it, go back and study it. Maybe listen to the message again. It opens with the introduction to the vision. This is a very, very heavy vision because when Daniel comes to the end of this vision, we read in verse 27, then I, Daniel, was exhausted and sick for days. Then I got up again and carried on the, biz the king's business, but I was astounded at the vision and there was none to explain it. Now, if we can grasp what Daniel grasped, we'll understand why, why he reacted the way he did. So we discover in verse 1, first something about the time of the vision by way of introduction. He tells us something about the time of the vision. In the third year of the reign of Belshazzar, the king, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, subsequent to the one which appeared to me previously. Immediately you read that and you say, Belshazzar, this is chapter 8. I thought he died back in chapter 5. The night Darius the Mede came in and conquered the kingdom. He did. But again, remember, chapters 7 through 12 fit in and around the first six chapters. Let me give you a chart so you can see it visually. The book opens 
with Daniel and his three friends coming in the first deportation from Jerusalem. The Babylonian captivity begins. Chapter 2, God gives Nebuchadnezzar a dream. Daniel interprets it. It's a dream that explains the history of the nations beginning with Daniel's day all the way until the second coming of Christ. Of course, in that dream, the first kingdom with a head of gold represents Nebuchadnezzar. He's rather enthralled, so he builds a statue all out of gold, and he asks everyone to bow down and worship, and of course, Daniel's three friends do not. When you come to the fourth chapter, we find this man whose wings were plucked, who was given a new heart, as we saw in the vision of the seventh chapter. He's humbled, and he lives like an animal for seven years. You'll meet Nebuchadnezzar in heaven someday. God can save the worst of folks. Between chapters four and five, chapter five being the fall of Babylon, that night when Darius the Mede sees the handwriting on the wall, and God brings, or when Belshazzar the king sees the handwriting on the wall, and Darius the Mede comes in and conquers Babylon. Between four and five, two visions. The one we studied in the last three weeks in chapter 7, dealing with the times of the Gentiles, and the vision that we're going to study today that will take us all the way to the coming Antichrist, the ram and the he-goat. Then chapter 5 takes place, and then one of the most remarkable prophecies in all of the Word of God, many a Jewish person has been converted by the ninth chapter. It's the 70 weeks prophecy of Daniel. It's one of the most fascinating and profound prophetic portions in all of Scripture. We'll spend at least three weeks in that section. Then Daniel in the lion's den. So between five and six, you have the 70 weeks prophecy. And then the final vision is introduced in the 10th chapter where you see the dark side. You see what is operating in the invisible realm. You'll never read the news the same way when you read the 10th chapter. And it serves as an introduction to the final vision and conclusion found in chapters 11 and 12. So it opens in the third year of Belshazzar. So that's after the humbling of Nebuchadnezzar and before the overthrow of Belshazzar, the night when Darius the Mede came in. So Belshazzar, we know from the book of Daniel, in secular history documents it. Daniel is one of the most documented books in all of the Bible by secular history that this man reigned for 15 years. So the night that Daniel sees the handwriting on the wall, he's around 67, 68 years old. This is the third year of the king's reign. So you can put out in the margin 551 BC. That's a firm date. It's 7-1, you have 553 BC. Two years have gone by. Remember, you go down before Christ. So we're at 551 B.C. Two years have transpired, which has given Daniel the prophet enough time to digest the prior vision. So that's the time of the vision. Verse 2 also gives us the place of the vision. We are told in verse 2, I looked in the vision, and while I was looking, I was in the citadel of, of Susa, which is in the province of Elam. And I looked in the vision, and I myself was beside the Uli Canal. Where in the world is Susa? Where is the province of Elam? Where is the Uli Canal? That's a significant notation. Now, you'll read of some places in the Bible, like, you know, Gog and Magog. You say, where is that? Well, what changes sometimes are the names of geographical reason, regions. I mean, just think in the last hundred years or so. St. Petersburg became Petrograd. 
Petrograd became Leningrad, and then Leningrad is now back to St. Petersburg. Well, this place, Elam, remember when we did the book of Genesis and we were in the table of nations? And I told you, if you really want to study the Bible, you're going to come back to that chapter over and over and over again. Remember Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Shem, his son Shem, had some sons, and one of his sons' names was Elam. And so we have the Elamites. And so the capital of this province known as Elam was in a place, was Susa. Today, it is modern-day Iran. And of course, this is the place where Daniel is buried, is pictured here. Daniel was to ancient Iran, what we call it today, what Ben Franklin was to the United States. He was very well esteemed. He was not technically one of theirs, obviously. He was a Jew from Israel. But they greatly esteemed him. And they've honored his burial place for centuries until recently ISIS has come in and totally destroyed it. It doesn't exist anymore. In modern terms, to take some of these names, think of the River Uli as the Potomac and Susa as Washington, D.C. And then you can understand the gist of what he's saying. He's basically saying, I was standing in the most prominent nation of the world and the capital that had a river that flew through, flowed through it, and I saw what God was going to do in and through that particular nation. So Daniel is transported in his mind in this vision 350 miles east of Babylon to the future capital of Medo-Persia. Remember, at this point, Medo-Persia is just a village. It's very, very unimpressive. But in the next decade, it's going to be transformed. Now, if you remember Daniel's vision of Medo-Persia, it was the Medo-Persians, as we studied in the second chapter and the seventh chapter, that overthrew the Chaldeans, also known as the Babylonians, all right? That's the introduction to the vision. Secondly, there's some information in the vision that I want us to discern, the information in the vision. It falls in three distinct scenes. First, we find the vision of the rambunctious ram. The vision of the rambunctious ram found in verses three and four. Then I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, a ram which had two horns was standing in front of the canal. Now the two horns were long, but one was longer than the other, with the longer one coming up last. And I saw the ram budding westward, northward, and southward. So Daniel sees this ram and has two horns and it butts in three directions, westward, northward, and southward. You may be thinking, Pastor Carl, you know, what do you think the ram is? Well, I don't have to guess because in the interpretation he tells me in verse 20, the ram which you saw with the two horns represents the kings of Media and Persia. Isn't that neat? We don't have to guess. We know the ram represents the empire after Babylon known as the Media Persian Empire. Notice again verse 3, in this vision, Daniel sees a ram, and it has two horns. However, he emphasizes, if you notice in the verse, two horns were long, um, and it's, what's unusual is that one horn is higher or longer than the other horn. And we're told that the ram butts in three directions, west, north, and south, and in that order. And that it was impossible, according to verse 4, to stop this ram because he did as he pleased. Now, if you remember the first time Daniel is given a vision of this empire, it's a bear that is raised up on one leg, Medo-Persia. 
It's also Nebuchadnezzar had a vision, but when Daniel's given the vision, it's the bear that's raised up on one leg. In this particular vision, it's a ram with two long budding horns depicting really its vicious, hateful nature. But he underscores that one horn is longer than the other. And again, that's very fitting if you've ever studied the Medo-Persian people. First, that the horns are long because they were a vicious people. They were a fierce people. In fact, 150 years before they ever come into existence, Isaiah the prophet writes about this empire. Let me read to you from Isaiah 13. You might want to put it in the margin next to this verse, Isaiah 13, 17 through 18, because God describes the vicious nature of these people. Behold, I am going to stir up the Medes against them, who will not value silver or take pleasure in gold, and their bows will mow down the young men. They will not even have compassion on the fruit of the womb, nor will their eye pity children. They remind me of Isis. They're as fierce as a bear, but they have a long budding horn like a ram, and they have no compassion on any of the people that they attack. And like the bear that was lopsided, raised up on one side to show two dimensions of this kingdom, this ram has two horns, one longer than the other. And again, God describes how this empire would unfold. Now, the two horns were long, but one was longer than the other, with the longer one coming up last. So one horn came up ahead of the other horn, but the second one in the end was longer than the first horn. This is a hyphenated kingdom, the Medo-Persian kingdom. So if you remember Daniel 5, let me read to you 30 and 31. On the night the Babylonian Empire was overthrown, we studied this. That same night, the same night the handwriting was on the wall and Daniel interpreted it. That same night, Belshazzar the Chaldean or Babylonian king was slain. So Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62. You say, well, I thought the second great empire was the Medo-Persian Empire. Yes, it was. Why did they refer to him as Darius the Mede? Because the night they came in, there were two armies, the Medo army and the Persian army, led by Darius. But one was, the, was stronger than the other. So when this empire began, Darius the Mede was the prominent leader, and that was the prominent side to the empire. But as time went on, one horn outgrew the second. And so we will come to Daniel chapter 10 and verse 1. And we read there, in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel. And so when you come to the 10th chapter, he is going to highlight the Persian side of the Medo-Persian empire because one horn outgrows the second. You follow me? All right, good. So Cyrus the Mede becomes mightier. Cyrus the Persian becomes mightier than Darius the Mede. And so Daniel says here in verse 4, I saw the ram budding westward, northward, and southward, and no other beast could stand before him, nor was there anyone to rescue from his power. And so the ram is budding in three directions. First, he attacks westward, and he overthrows Babylon. Then he attacks northward, and, he, and, and all the way from, from, to the Caspian Sea, he overthrows Lydia. And finally, he attacks southward and he overthrows Egypt. That is precisely 
how secular history records the military might of this empire. And this is why people are bothered by the book of Daniel. Because Daniel is writing about it when they are just a little tribe of nothing. And so when the Persians empire uh, come to might and that horn grows large, you begin to see God working. And he works through a man by the name of Cyrus. Now Cyrus is an interesting man because 150 years before Cyrus is even born, God prophesizes of him not only of what he will do, but he writes his name in the Holy Scripture 150 years before he is even born. Isaiah the prophet who ministered during the time of Uzziah, Jotham, and so forth, he writes about this man Cyrus and what he is going to do. And again, this drives the liberal critics crazy. How can anyone write the future? If you start with the presupposition that there's no such thing as the supernatural, if you can't believe Genesis 1-1, you can't believe much of the rest of the Bible. So God put the key in the front door. And so God wrote of this man ever before he was born. And there are aspects of Isaiah that not even the most liberal critic can deny. Isaiah, remember, he lives around seven, he lives and prophesies around 700 years before Christ. And there are aspects of the book of Isaiah that Jewish people, the church fathers, the reformers, they all dated it. So how do they get around Cyrus? Because he's in part of that section of Isaiah that they cannot deny. They say it's just a coincidence. And then Isaiah has all these other prophecies, and the way they get around it is they say there's either two or three authors to Isaiah. They speak of Deutero-Isaiah or Tritero-Isaiah. And when you hear some pastors saying, well, this is second Isaiah or third Isaiah, you are listening to an apostate, and you ought to get up and leave and find another pastor. And so God is writing in advance. Now think about this for just a second. In the Old Testament alone, there's over 300 prophecies concerning the first coming of the Messiah. Dr. John Walford, who's, in my opinion, the greatest prophecy scholar of the 20th century, he cataloged 333 to be specific. But there's over 300 prophecies that all deal with Christ's first coming. Dr. James Hogg, a physicist from Stanford University, tried to figure out what was the probability that someone in their lifetime could fulfill just 50 of those prophecies by chance. And this statistician said it was 1 times 10 to the 160th power. Now, I don't know what you call 1 with 160 zeros after it, except I would call it the supernatural inspiration of Scripture. God knows the future. He knows the beginning and the end. And there's no other book on the face of the earth that has fulfilled prophecy in specific, minute detail except the Bible alone. So here's the vision of the rambunctious ram. Now in verses 5 through 7, and he's going somewhere. So stay with me. This is important. In verses 5 through 7, we have the vision of the galloping goat. As Daniel thinks with utter amazement at the conquest of the ram, another animal appears in the scene. The Hebrew text refers to him in some of your translations as a he-goat. Literally, it reads, a buck of the goats. And we're told that this he-goat, this ram, this male goat, has a conspicuous horn between his eyes. Verse 5 begins, While I was observing, behold, a male goat was coming from the west, 
over the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. And so this male goat with this conspicuous horn between his eyes moves so swiftly, it appears his feet don't even touch the ground. And as he approaches the ram, verse 6, he came up to the ram that had the two horns, which I had seen standing in front of the canal, and rushed at him with his mighty wrath. Look at verse 7. I saw him come beside the ram, and he was enraged at him, and he struck the ram and shattered his two horns, and the ram had no strength to withstand him. So he hurled him to the ground and trampled on him, and there was none to rescue the ram from his power. You say, well, what do you suppose that means, pastor? Well, verse 21 tells me. I don't have to suppose. The shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece, and the large horn that is between his eyes is the first king. So there's no mystery here. We learn that this empire that follows Medo-Persia is the Grecian Empire. And, uh, of course, the first king in the Grecian Empire was Alexander the Great. And he seemed to literally fly. My son is an officer in the Marine Corps. He was telling me, you know, they still study Alexander the Great in the Marine Corps in some of his battles. He was a genius of sorts in terms of how he handled his army with lightning speed. People were scared to death of the man. He was the son of the brilliant Philip of Macedon, and his mother's name was Olympus. One biographer writing of Alexander said, Alexander inherited the best quality, qualities of both his parents. His mother taught him that he was an ancestor of the god Anchilles, uh, namely from her side of the family, and that his daddy, Philip, was a descendant of the god Hercules. Now, you talk about motivating a young man. And, of course, at the age of 14, it is said that he broke a horse that no one could ever, ever break. And he used that same horse to run all of his battles until his death. And it was his father, Philip, who said, Alexander, seek a kingdom worthy of yourself, for Macedonia is too small for you. And so he decided to conquer the world. Now look, if two pagan parents with pagan theology can motivate their child to greatness, what we, should we do as believers in the one true God who have the word of God? We need to help them to see what God has called them for and what he has destined them to be. And so in verse 6, in describing Alexander, we're told that he rushed at him, this ram with two horns, in his mighty wrath. In verse 7, we're told that this male goat approached the ram, and he was enraged at him, and he struck the ram and shattered his two horns, and the ram had no strength to withstand him. And that's exactly how Alexander came, nursing a grudge that these people had had for 150 years against the Persians. And so in 331 B.C., Alexander the Great comes. He devastates the Persians. This battle is studied to this day. It's one of the bloodiest battles in the history of military operations. Following the death of Alexander the Great, his kingdom is divided amongst four generals, and that's where we'll pick up tomorrow in our study of Daniel chapter 8. To listen again to today's program, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD copy by calling 
787-748-7478 and requesting program DAN11. Tomorrow we continue our look at Antiochus and the Antichrist. Join us then as we search the scriptures.